I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Ellich and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. Regular listeners will know that we're uh, we recently embarked upon a new sort of mini series in which I go on exciting walks across the capital with with people who want to be this fine city's mayor. There are, however, other mayoral elections happening elsewhere in this country at the same time in in May, uh, and to kind of act as a curtain raiser on on that and the local elections more generally, I've got the New Statesman's politics editor Stephen Bush for me. Hello, Stephen. Hello. So, mayors, exciting. You excited? Uh, I am actually. I mean, I think. I think so. There are lots of reasons why I'm excited about about this set. And I've primarily been focusing on the outside London ones because... We kind of know where London's going, don't we? Well, I think it's, it's not just that we know... It's not just that we know that Sadiq Khan will be re-elected. Yeah, so we, we know that Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham are going to be going to be re-elected. But, in Greater Manchester in the Liverpool City region, yeah. respectively. But um, the sort of the fascinating thing is, right, is we know in London that we have a... A mayoralty that was created, yes, after Labour won the 97 election, promising to do it, but created after a referendum, there is a huge sort of level of buy-in to it as an entity. Now, the, the fascinating thing about all of the other metro mayoralties which are up this year, which are, I'm almost certainly going to forget one it's or add two one we've on. mentioned, the Greater, Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region. And then West there's the Midlands. one you're not allowed to describe as Greater Birmingham, even though yeah. that is what it is, because it's just like, it's not West Midlands. So, so much of the West Midlands is not in it. It is Birmingham and its surrounding conurbation. Well, yeah, there's always been that weird thing with, like, the West Midlands was the name of the metropolitan county, mm. but it's also the name of the, so the wider region, including, like, Shropshire and Warwickshire and so on. It's like, just give them different names, guys. This is yeah. not helpful. The other one, of course, is, is the Tees Valley, home of the sainted Sue Jeffrey who sadly, I believe, is not standing as Labour's candidate this time around. No, it is a woman who has an alliterative name, which I did make a note of when I came in, and I've already forgotten, Joe Jacobs, who runs a charity. So, I mean, the interesting thing about the Tees Valley is that no one expected Ben Houchen to win. Including it, Ben Houchen. It, it symbolised on the night in 2017 just what a bad set of local elections it was for the Labour Party. Labour then clawed back a lot of that ground in time for the 2017 general election. Then you had in December 2019 an election which was basically, to all intents and purposes, like the election that people expected to get in 2017, but but did not arrive for various reasons. Now, so the, the, the reason why this is all very interesting is that, you know, why are the opponents to Sadiq Khan 
either from minor parties or fairly rubbishy because Sadiq's poll lead scared off anyone halfway decent from the Conservative Party for running. You know, Sean Bailey is very much what you get in an electoral cycle when everyone of substance and stature goes, do you know what, I think I'll be washing my hair that election rather than potentially losing on the first round. It no longer looks like Sadiq Khan will win on the first round. It, however, still looks nailed on certain he will win on the the second round. Ditto, uh, why has the Conservative Party still yet to select a candidate in in Greater Manchester? Because Andy Burnham is widely believed to have done a very good job in that in that area. He yeah he he already outperformed Labour in 2017. I think everyone expects. And indeed, yeah, I, I spoke to one Conservative who's very into the localism agenda, and they said. Well, we've all got to hope that Andy Burnham does very well because he deserves to. And if and, and if this stuff is going to work, and I think they're entirely correct. If, if, if devolution to Metro Mayors is going to work, they need to become their own political ecosystems, right? They can't just do, you know, the problem with local councils always have is, although good local councils can can escape national swings slightly, they can't escape them very much. So it doesn't lend itself to great governance. The hope, of course, is that you have these mayors and that they become their own political ecosystems and that allows them to mm. deliver effectively. I wrote a piece years ago, God knows when, I think it was before the first round of these of the Greater Manchester election in 2017, about how there were certain similarities between Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan as politicians. They both kind of talk slightly in sound bites. They both tend to sort of be a bit you know, they shift with the direction of, of the broader debate and so on. They're not necessarily ideological. They both like a good quote. And I read a piece saying, well, why is, why is it this strategy has worked quite well for Sadiq Khan, but it's failing miserably for Andy Burnham? Not long after that, Andy Burnham won the Greater Manchester mayoral election. He didn't just win it, he won it incredibly well. So I don't know the extent to which that was an example of me being massively wrong about something or to which it's an example of actually that is a very good strategy if you're standing as mayor. So I actually think it, it was and is completely right, right? In that, OK, yes, Andy Burnham is from the right of the Labour Party, Sadiq Khan is from the middle of it. But broadly, they were both people who, who recognised there is this Corbyn wave, you can be on it or underneath it, and they did everything in order to maximise their chances of winning their respective selections. They then won their selections and then won their elections fairly handily. Sadiq Khan doing about as well as you'd expect a generic Labour candidate to do, with the exception of among London's Jewish community, where he did an awful lot of very hard work and was very vocal on the issue of Labour anti-Semitism. And the, the first thing he did once he had the job was to go to a Holocaust memorial. Service, yeah, right. Like he, uh, he took that very seriously. As yeah. a- Whereas you know Andy Burnham hugely outperformed the Labour Party in every metric on local elections on the same, just by ev- every measure you, you care to name, but. Andy has also been an incredibly effective mayor, right? Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's used the bully pulpit of it well to advocate for more powers. He's, you know, he's done some very interesting things with the powers he has. He's, you know, he's been unafraid to pick fights with, you know, his own local party, you know, launching this, you know, this 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 report into Operation Augusta, which was the failed attempt to bring anyone to book for grooming young girls in, I won't say 2004. Now, it's a really important report. It's brilliant and it's happening. But ultimately, this is a report which, yeah, in phase two will be even more so, which is primarily going to end up focusing, yes, on some national policies, but also will end up focusing on Labour-run authorities, right? That is a kind of thing very few politicians do. And I think it's striking that Andy Burnham has sat there doing some quite significant things in terms of how he uses his powers, and people are still like, lol, lol, Andy Burnham, what a joke. Yet Sadiq Khan 
I'm sorry, his his record going into this re-election is what? A bus's fair policy than he stole from Tessa Jowell, who stole from Caroline Pidgeon, the Liberal Democrat spokesman on the Assembly. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 so I, think it is, I think it is a striking example of, of a North-South bias that more people do not go, oh, hasn't Andy Burnham said some interest? You know, why isn't Andy Burnham still a figure of substance within Labour's internal debates? He, I think he unarguably has a right to be so. I think it's. I think you can overthink this. It is purely because, like, all the media is based in London, and so we're aware of what the London mayor is doing. We're not necessarily aware of what the mayor of Greater Manchester is doing. That's that's you know that's not good. That says bad things about us as an industry. But I think the explanation is actually quite simple. I, I know I'm not convinced by this theory, and obviously you know it's it's one that's advanced by lots of people, including several media organisations which are based outside of London, but. The reason why, why why I think that falls down is that's a good explanation for why Sadiq Khan would have a larger profile compared to Andy Burnham. But you can't really say that the coverage of Sadiq Khan in national outlets, there are obviously exceptions, City Metric, Dave Hill's on London blog, but you, you can't really say that in general there is an awareness of the ways that Sadiq Khan's record has fallen down. No, people the, don't tend to write about policy very much. Yeah, the, the, the coverage of... And, yeah, one of the reasons why... You know, I think there are lots of things of the kind of devolution agenda which I'm very pro, but I think the one I'm most sceptical of is when people go, oh, if you move bits of the media out, coverage of those parts of the world will improve. It's just like, well, tell that to the, you know, the millions of people in London who have poisoned air or the people in Grenfell Tower or, indeed, anyone who would like Sadiq Khan's record to receive some meaningful scrutiny beyond is the mayor of London responsible for a rise in crime as occurring all across the United Kingdom. But I think we're, we're conflating two different things here. There's like, how much do you cover something? Or how much do you cover someone? Like, the mayoralty is an institution, what Sadiq has said, what Andy Burnham has said. And there's how much do you cover policy? And like, the media being based largely in London means that we're all more likely to pay attention when Sadiq stands up and says something stupid or, you know, comes up with a... or comes up with a funny line to attack Donald Trump or whatever... But this doesn't suddenly make everyone interested in the air pollution policy. Mm, I know. I do also think it's an, one of the things that Sadiq has been incredibly good at is he speaks to a kind of all electorates are, are deeply parochial in their own ways. One of the ways that the London electorate is parochial is it likes to believe and it is sophisticated and worldly and the best city in the country and the world. And Sadiq, just as Boris Johnson did, is very good at kind of tapping into that who's like us, nobody aspect and there isn't yet I think an equivalent sort of well and and I think that is the thing that a London based media does pick up on because lots of people in the media do also have that kind of who's like us nobody but anyway let's let's get back on to the other mayoralties so uh, there's the the Tees Valley where the kind of fascinating thing about that is Labour has treated that as if it's very winnable again they have selected you know this person who ran a charity Uh, Jesse Jesse by the way oh well but you know you remember two thirds of the name yeah yeah close but no cigar but you know it's a serious candidacy, and it's a candidacy which is one of a party which thinks it can win. It's fascinating to find out if it will, because, yes, they did very badly in 2019. However, 2019 was a landslide defeat for the Labour Party. We know that outside of the London mayoralty and the two devolved parliaments, there is not much of a separate political ecosystem in local government yet. Ben Houchin has done, I think, a lot better than most people certainly than, than you and I expected. Yeah, I mean, um, my, my sense of Houchin is he kind of, he ran that sort of quite trolley campaign. Trolley is in like an internet troll rather than like a thing you push your shopping in campaign in 2017 saying stuff like, well, why don't we nationalise the airport so we can get more flights? Or, you know, it's that kind of slightly kooky stuff to get headlines. 
as a profile raiser rather than because he thought he was going to win. And then once he actually won, it's like, oh, crap, now I have to actually run this combined authority. And this turned out to be not that bad. Like, he's actually, like, come up with some interesting ideas on, like, economic development and that kind of stuff. He's actually been taking it much more seriously than it looked like he would. And he has, you know, semi-regrettably, actually has revived the airport, which is great from an economic perspective. You know, I'm not going to use this to be yet another podcast in which Stephen's views on airport expansion get uh, another sort of tedious airing. But No, please do. We've got time to fill. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think it's... Obviously, it's good for the Tees Valley. I think it's bad for the United Kingdom as a whole. Which allows me to effortlessly yeah. segue on to another, another mayor, another Conservative mayor in another place which, I mean, so again, West Mids, you would, you would feel looking at you know, very close margin on a very bad set of local elections for the Labour Party, you would assume that it will be difficult for Andy Street to win re-election, although the Labour Party has had a hilariously casual approach to selecting its candidate. Has it got one yet? It doesn't have one yet. It is still unclear at time of writing whether it will be Pete Lowe, local authority leader, Salma Yacoub, formerly of Respect, whose uh, candidacy has caused a lot of ruffled feathers in the Labour Party, or Liam Byrne, former cabinet minister, uh, M- MP for, I really want to say, Hodge Hill. I think it was Birmingham Hodge Hill, um, yeah. You know, who, who is not, a, I mean, my sense of Liam Byrne is he's not, a, he's not a bad chap, but he does kind of like stumble from gaff to gaff. He was the guy of the... Um, Good luck. There's no money left. Note, which was a bit um, I mean, unreasonable on the part of his conservative successor to kind of. Well, it, it wasn't. The problem wasn't his conservative successor, so because he and Philip Hammond are good mates. Was it Lib Dem who did that? Yeah. So he let he left it for Philip Hammond, who was his opposition shadow, and they had got on really well, and they had talked about departing it. I think it was a foolish joke to make because. It was would, very obviously a joke. But, well, but, also, yeah, but it's what not you, one you should let, write down. Let's say Cameron had won, decided that he needed to put Philip Hammond somewhere else, and you end up with someone else. Yeah, like yes, the fact you end up with David Laws choosing to weaponize it gives it a kind of you know personal you know lib lab intra beef sort of issue. But you know it was always a hostage to fortune. But I think in general, right, he's someone who could obviously do the role. He's you know a serious political figure and by selecting him Labour would guarantee that they would get slightly more coverage because, because he is a bit of a name because he's a bit of a you know which obviously helps if you are not the incumbent and again this is why I say it segues to the plane thing one of the things Andy Street has been really impressive about given that the electoral profile of the average Conservative voter both in the West Midlands and indeed across the country is not shall we say well optimised to taking climate change seriously because a lot of it is our motorists is he has um, you know advocated and won investment to expand the Birmingham tram a hugely important way to make transport in the conurbation greener and easier he has such, been, it's so car based the West Midlands more yeah. than more than most of the other big conurbations it's it's really difficult to get around there without a car yeah he's been really quite brave in supporting congestion charging considering you know so i mean one of the interesting things in the london mayoralty is sean bailey the conservative candidate is essentially kind of running a campaign that for the most part has been like a kind of weird exercise in every bit of the tory id that could almost be laboratory designed to be like so what is the core vote in london with the exception of the low low emission zone where actually the gla conservatives have had a, a very responsible and sensible measure yeah they've kind of carped a bit about the implementation but they supported it under Boris Johnson. They're continuing to support it now. And Sean Bailey hasn't really played politics over it. Now, of course, the only reason that's surprising is that Sean Bailey as a overall bid for the mayoralty 
seems so profoundly uninterested both in the things you need to do to win the London mayoralty and in putting forward serious policies that you could enact if you were the London mayor. But of course, one of the reasons why you can do that in London is that broadly, London has has reached the happy place that we want all of our major conurbations to reach, which is a place where car ownership is a choice for most people. And then you can gradually, through pulling various policy levers, incentivize people becoming car free and gradually reduce people's dependency on, on the motor car. Now, we, if we want to achieve our carbon targets, Birmingham is going to have to get into where well, the West Mids and that whole conurbation is going to have to get that zone too. But it's a much longer journey. And I think it's very impressive that Andy Street has has not gone, actually, I hate congestion charging. He has sort of leaned into that and been a very strong advocate for all of, of that kind of thing. So he starts, I mean, one of the really interesting things about it is, is a, I can't believe I'm about to say one of the interesting things about it is that it feels to me like the election results all ought to result in the incumbent being re-elected. You'd expect Andy Burnham to be re-elected just because it's Greater Manchester. We'd hope because his record has been very good that he would kind of, it would, yeah, I think it would be good for devolution as an agenda as a whole mm-hmm. if, if it was shown that someone doing a very good job in that continues to outperform what we'd expect, you know, a generic candidate with that colour of rosette to do. We would similarly kind of expect all things being equal, given that they're first-term incumbents who've got fairly decent records to protect, Andy Street and Ben Houchin to be re-elected. And then we would expect Sadiq Khan, who doesn't have much of a record to defend, but is very good at embodying, you know, Dennis Healy once said that the reason why Eisenhower beat Adlai Stevenson is because Americans like to have a king as well as a president. And ultimately, I think there is a strong thing that lots of people, particularly indigenous Londoners like ourselves, like to have a king as well as a a mayor. And Sadiq is a past master at tapping into that. But I think the fascinating thing about all of them, right, is they are integral to... This is a really exciting time if you're into devolution. You have a prime minister who, who... has done that job, buys into the ways that job can you know can change things, has never met an infrastructure project and he didn't like, and also has won a bunch of seats that, rightly or wrongly, many Conservatives think they need to deliver economic improvements for those constituencies in order to hold them in, in 2024. And so this is a really exciting moment, if you're pro-devolution or any of that stuff, in which you've got to hope that the voters will, you know, there'll be a higher turnout than there was in 2017, and hopefully a sign that they are all developing into their own unique political ecosystem rather than just people kick the incumbents of the governing party because that's what people do in local elections. I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I'm ve- I am very into devolution, as, as you all know. I think it's tremendously exciting. We can talk about trams. But I can't quite get my head around, given all that, why has the Labour Party not selected a candidate for what should be a winnable, massive winnable mayoralty for them? Like the West Midlands is, is the biggest outside London. It's slightly bigger than Greater Manchester. And... Sean Simon, who was not a great candidate, let's be honest for ourselves, he was pretty rubbish. It wasn't a shock to me that Andy Street beat him. Came within, I think, 0.4% of winning that. This, even now, even after last December's election, this should be a totally winnable election for Labour. Why have they not nominated the bloody candidate yet? Factionalism? I mean, ultimately, you know, that, that whole thing is about parts of Labour's ruling faction wanting to find a way to defeat Liam Byrne. Obviously, other parts, so John McDonnell has endorsed Liam Byrne, partly because of their, uh, they get on quite well at a personal level, partly because 
They Mac- agree on lots of devolution related bits of politics. As, as the senior figures on Labour's radical left go, McDonnell was always the pragmatist, wasn't he? He was the one who, like... Well, I mean, I also think there's probably an element, you know, without wishing to be unduly cynical, uh, although that is, let's face it, my middle name, there's an element of you get someone who's not of your politics, you move them from a safe seat to a metro mayoralty, you control the selection for the safe seat, Hello, uh, you've increased your parliamentary okay, numbers by one. But, you know, because that view is not mainstream within uh, the people who currently, at time of recording, although obviously that may change in April, control pretty much all of the levers of power in the Labour Party, we have this very long selection process, which is designed to slightly disadvantage the fact that you would kind of assume that because people have heard of Liam Byrne, he will, he will win out on that selection. But it does, of course, have the added consequence, and it makes it harder for anyone, be it Liam Byrne, Salma Yacoub, Whoever to to win to mm. win this elect to win the election afterwards because in an ideal world they would have had their candidate in place a year ago going around like pointing at potholes and looking sad right like this. so I think it's interesting to compare and contrast the, the conservative approach to their selection in London and the Labour approach to the selection in West Midlands because I think arguably not arguably I think they both went the wrong at the wrong time the conservatives in electing so early one they ended up electing at what now turns out to have been now it may be that Sadiq Khan's popularity rebounds in May or you know or you know his his second term has a huge record delivery and and we're talking Mm. in 2022 of you know of Sadiq Khan you know of Khan mania right that's possible but they sent the Tories essentially chose to select a point when Sadiq Khan was regularly yeah, every indication was he was going to win in the first round. Now, unsurprisingly, that meant that because they actually, considering they have so few MPs in London, they've actually got a really deep bench of like deeply plausible people in who in Parliament who could have done it. Ed Vasey would have been a brilliant candidate for them. Justine Greening would have been a brilliant candidate for them. You actually could go for someone who represented an out of London seat, but was you know kind of quite London friendly. You know, well, someone, Boris Johnson was an out of London seat. Yeah, when he became a candidate. It wasn't he? Was yeah, friendly, like, so. I mean, someone. I mean, I realise I'm saying this, and I keep listing people who are no longer in the Conservative Party for one reason or another. But you know, someone like say Nick Bowles, right? Mm. You know, committed supporter of, of Brexit, but of a soft Brexit. Committed advocate for the right to die. You know, loads of liberal bona fides. You know, these are all candidates who, at the least, you would have thought that them running, they would have been able to give Sadiq Khan a proper fright. And they would, I think, definitely have generated lots of comment on the kind of, well, you know, I'm going to vote Sadiq Khan, but Ed Vasey is a great guy. And there are lots of changes in the Conservative Party since then, which has meant that those candidates have become unavailable. But one of the reasons why people who did not feel their careers were well served in the May administration went, do you know what, I'm okay, thanks, is because they did it quite so early on. Whereas the Labour Party sort of done the opposite extreme in the West Midlands, where they're going to select someone it's going to will immediately go and then it will essentially immediately be into the election so they're hobbled from the get go now if both of those parties had selected in say october last year june last year you give them a decent run up but you probably maximize your chances of getting a properly heavyweight candidate and this sorry i'm aware that i'm doing my kind of nicholas parsons tribute talking without hesitation but probably lots of repetition it's, um, it's a crime that that man didn't get a knighthood before he died but, anyways. True. but one of one of the ways that the cameron era conservatives have set a precedent that neither the labor party in any incarnation nor the post cameron conservatives have yet equal is real ambition for people they recruited to run in mayoralties from basically, you know, kind of like putting their, yeah, putting Boris in a headlock and going, you know, come on, you are going to run for mayor, to wooing Andy Street, you know, a brilliant candidate, both because he's done a fairly good job of doing it, but also because 
The guy ran John Lewis. My, my favourite fact about the West Midlands conurbation is that in the focus groups that both parties have, have run on it, voters will say unprompted, I, th- I really like that John Lewis guy. He's doing a good job. They actually think his name is John Lewis in some of the focus <laughs> groups because, yeah, understandably, he talks about it lots. So, yeah, I mean, when I interviewed him for this very podcast about three years ago now, the interview was conducted in the cafe of the big John Lewis at New Street Station. I mean, it's a great Don, great Don Lewis. I always make a point of going to it where, when conferences held in Birmingham. If you think then they're into that one, seriously, I, I you know I can't remember which election it was. I was in Solihull, but I look back through my notes and I think almost every voter mentioned that they were in. You arrive in Solihull and people are like, "Welcome to Solihull, home of John Lewis." And it's just like we have one in London. And they're like. Welcome to Solihull. We've got a John Lewis. It, I honestly think they were probably they were probably Jesus probably had disciples who were less into Christ than people in <laughs> Solihull are, are into to their John Lewis. So he's a, a great candidate, and it was hu- a huge level of ambition to want a candidate of that quality. Whereas, I mean, Sean Simon, I have nothing against the guy, but an MEP and a junior minister in the Blair in the in the Blair Brown government is just not at that quality level. He just wasn't very impressive, and he was so complacent about it, like. The same day, I think, they interviewed Andy Street. Or maybe it was different. But anyway, they went out in the same podcast. I interviewed Sean Simon. And he was very complacent about it. Like, he was like, you know, everyone always says that Liverpool and Manchester are very Labour. Well, if you look at it, it's not that different here. Obviously, Labour's going to win. There was just kind of no sort of concern about the fact that there wasn't a hunger. Yeah, I mean, I think there was an astonishing level of kind of... I mean, because I remember hearing from, you know a senior official on that campaign. And they just kind of said to me, like, oh, they basically went, went, and I'm being slightly crude in this, but what they essentially said was, oh, it'll be fine, we'll turn out the Asian vote. Which, I mean, when I mentioned something a bit like that to Birmingham MP, they just went, a lot of the Asian vote in the conurbation votes conservative, and even if it all voted for one party, it's not big enough to elect one candidate, and crucially, a lot of it votes conservative. It was a, it just was an astonishingly, and I just think you know, it's, it's just inept. Yeah, and I, I, I do think it's surprising the level of, you know, given that you know local government has been the engine of you know so many different eras and so many different wings of Labour appointment. It's been a real crucible of innovation. I think the kind of lack of interest in going, okay, let's let's actually run this stuff. You know, who was one of the most interesting people in the 2019 intake? James Murray, who worked on housing policy in City Hall. Uh, it was Deputy Mayor for Housing. Deputy Mayor for Housing. Oh, yeah, prior, I to, prior to that was my, my councillor in Islington and uh, got my gate fixed. Yeah. So, so I was very in favour of his appointment as uh, housing czar because he clearly knew his stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's surprising to me that there hasn't been more ambition to recruit that candidate, particularly because in the case of Corbynism, right, it's not the only problem Corbynism had from 2015 to 2019, but one of them was that a lot of talented people in their 30s and 40s had been unable to get selected, 30s, 40s, 50s, had been unable to get selected from you know, your kind of late, early 90s to mid-noughties. And, so you had a, and you had a parliamentary party which was quite old or young, untested, or in some cases just not up to it. But there was a lot of kind of Corbynite talent in the third sector that they could have tapped up to run for some of these things they could have brought in through the Lords and there was such a real disinterest in doing so and using any of these elections to be a showcase for Corbynism in office and that lack of ambition is a problem not just for them but for, for the whole of the Labour Party really. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's a couple of things I want to I want to get through before we wrap up. Firstly, it's not a metro mayoralty, but I think we should uh, touch on Bristol, where I believe Martin Rees is up for re-election. Yeah, I mean, I know this is a deeply terrible opinion, but I'm Bristol, brilliant city. I really should manufacture a concern in it because that way the NS would pay for me to go to what's a brilliant, lovely city. But you don't find it an interesting race yeah i'm just i'm just so i yeah i, I realize as 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 tv said in his final prime minister's question someone asked him about something about the church because i'm not that bothered about that frankly but um all right well stephen bush hates bristol you heard it here first well i think one of the interesting sort of mis- i was in bristol at the weekend i went to the clifton suspension bridge which i've never seen before which is magnificent go see it if you've not been yeah no, it is a brilliant city but i think one of the weird missed opportunities about devolution in that part of the world right is that then they've created this weird thing which looks a bit like Avon but isn't quite. With mm, it's missing, which is it, North, North Somerset? Yeah, like the kind of weird sort of Bath and Bristol kind of like joint thing which sits above the Bristol mayoralty. Which, where the Metro mayor is Tim Bowles, the Conservative. Okay, well that actually gives me a, a, a very natural segue to my next question, which is not all the Metro mayoralties that are up in 2017 are up this year, because Cambridgeshire and Peterborough and the West of England, which is the, the sort of uh, Avon impersonator we were just describing, are on a different cycle. I was wondering if you like nerdy stuff like this. Can you explain that? Why are they why are they holding them next year? Oh, so the rationale is, right, so so these metro mayoralties have all been cut down, right? They've had three-year terms, not their, the four years they'll have for, from there on. Is that they are all, what's that abbreviation, shortening, PUAs, which I always want to call PUAS, than the centre for cities is fond of, right? So they're all... Primary urban areas. Yeah, they're all basically con- urban conurbations. Now, like, obviously London is an urban conurbation, yeah, a sort of series of small towns and villages that has become a city which has a very strong combined identity. The West Midlands, yeah, that kind of conurbation from Birmingham to Wolverhampton. When you go through, which you should, the tram's brilliant, you feel very virtuous, you have a nice view. But ultimately, it is slightly wild to me whenever I cover elections or just visit that part of the world. The... Yeah, almost virulent sense some people in Wolverhampton have that they live in a different city when it is 
basically two minutes of green grass separating the two of them, right? Mm. It literally would be like if you arrived in Hackney and someone went, here I am in London. They're like, I am not in London. I will not hear any of that imperialism from from people in, 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 in Westminster. Just like, you're in London, mate. But, you know, they're basically all kind of uh, primarily urban conurbations. And so the idea is you have all of the kind of big city elections in one cycle, and this will hopefully in the long term engender a kind of sort of thing where... Because obviously there's this problem, right, that that people primarily talk about London and then they go, oh, and also there's these metro mayoralties. Mm. The idea is and it kind of creates a sort of broader civic and national awareness than we elect mayors and they happen and they're the big centrepiece of this set of local elections. It's it's interesting that the west of England is not considered one of them because I can never remember whether Avon was a metropolitan county or not, I assume not. But then it's it's less urban than those, but it is still sort of greater Bristol, isn't it? But I mean, I think that's why I think that the Avon one is poorly conceived because you can broadly see, so Cambridgeshire and Peterborough even actually is, is primarily a rural conurbation. Um, These two medium-sized <coughs> cities at yeah. either end of the conurbation. Yeah. Now, of course, there's... Conurbation, the, county, right? Of course, one of the fascinating urban trends in the United Kingdom is Cambridge is one of the cities that is successfully growing and building building houses. It's becoming a proper city. And I think it's one of, one of the things I suspect will happen, maybe even by the next election, is a bunch of Conservative MPs in Cambridgeshire will lose their seats. Another one will become marginal and everyone will go... How did that happen in this home of traditional conservatism? And someone will like illustrate it with like a picture of like some great rural expanse of like, mm-hmm. uh, well, mate, actually, those are all full of like nice new build homes with scientists and researchers who are employed either directly or indirectly by Cambridge this, University. So it's not really surprising that the Conservatives have lost This feels an under-discussed trend. Like, I'm, I can't remember what it was before 97, but I have a sense that Cambridge was maybe a little bit marginal. It's safe Labour now. Oh, so Cambridge it, was it, a, a, can, can, a ninety-seven gain or a nineteen ninety-two gain, but you know it was a it was solidly conservative throughout most of the Thatcher government. That was my sense. I just yeah. wasn't certain of it, and it's it basically followed the path that Canterbury is now following, and I think Oxford's done the same thing. Yorkenna maybe was Yorkenna ever Tory? Was I mean I th- I'm not sure if I'm not sure if York. I mean it's actually so it's maddeningly called York Central because why wouldn't you have a York Central and a York Outer, not a York Inner and a York Outer? Who knows? But I, I think York Centre is one of those ones where you look at an 83 and you're like, wow, that was close, rather than it actually tipping. Mm, but okay. um, but yeah, like all of all of these places kind of, you know, the, and obviously the the, glo- the global problem for, for the left and centre left is that their vo- vo- voters are, are, due to economic trends, concentrating themselves in ever less efficient places under any sort of majoritarian electoral system. Sure, but what I'm kind of wondering is why... It doesn't feel like we've had a discussion about this. We've all the discussion about, you know, the, the, the crumbling red wall and all those kind of seats in the north that have always been Labour and have just started going Tory. And that's largely for demographic reasons that basically, like, young people get degrees and move out, leaving older, whiter, Brexity people there. I mean, it's massively oversimplification, but that's... That's a big part of it. And we talk a lot about that. I don't feel like we're talking as much about these sort of, you know, well-to-do university cities that would once have been quite Tory and now pretty safe Labour. So I think there are a couple of reasons why we don't do that, right? The first is is that there's always a bias in political commentary towards what has happened, and it tends to be quite based on the headline of what's happened, right? So let's take the 2019 election. 
big conservative majority of 80, but you only need 20,000 Liberal Democrat votes, so 0.1% of the of the Liberal Democrat vote to be better allocated, and then suddenly you have no conservative majority. So just all of your places like Winchester, Guildford, which are just right. so, so close to flipping, you just, just, need that, just need all of those marginal calls to go the other way, and suddenly you've got quite a different political situation. And then I suspect we would be over in debt. Yeah, people would be going, well, this shows in the Conservative Party. Yeah, you, you saw it a bit before the election, you yeah. know, I wrote a list of kind of misconceptions about the the election before it you know before it happened. Where I went, you know, people kept saying, "Oh, how can the Conservatives win without X?" Well, actually, there were loads and loads of ways. I mean, they did nearly lose Kensington. Yeah, there were loads of ways for them to win without Kensington. Just as there were loads of ways for this successful electoral strategy to have gone belly up. And people are quite bad at being alive to how marginal something actually is Mm. because they just go oh well look how many seats of it there were i think the other reason why people don't talk it up because there are three right the second is ultimately at the moment at the moment is obviously always an important qualifier but at the moment what the conservative party has lost in places like southeast cambridgeshire being a libcon marginal in places like high peak where you had a labor candidate who had repeatedly been involved in a series of rows about labor anti-semitism so where the labor party therefore was running considerably weaker than it was nationally and actually a very strong and impressive candidate in the new conservative mp for high peak could you know run in a marginal before so kind of everything you would you would want in terms of having an experienced candidate won very narrowly why because high peak is basically becoming to Manchester and to Sheffield, what Canterbury is to London. Why did Reading West and Reading East, well, why did Matt Roller keep his seat? Why did Alok Sharma you know, remain marginal when everyone else was increasing? Well, again, the Londonification of those seats. But because at the moment, the price of the voters the Conservatives have decided they're not interested in is is worth the product, which is the seats they have won. At the moment, no one's going, hey, guys, but there is quite a big downside risk here, and it wouldn't take that much the Labour Party could plausibly fall to hung parliament losing by eight points so that's one of the reasons and then the third reason is to do with the Labour Party itself which is that the good thing about first past the post if you're a party doing electoral strategy is you don't have to sit there going oh we lost these voters and these voters first past the post does regrettably mean some voters matter more so it doesn't really matter why the Conservative Party won Wakefield, Bishop Auckland, Redcar. The Labour Party does need to regain at least some of them to win a to form a government, let alone to win a majority government. But I do think there's a strong element within the Labour Party that basically it's okay to want to win back Wakefield if the problem is that a bunch of like horny handed sons of toil who worked down a mine for thirty years have suddenly gone, I don't like that Jeremy Corbyn and then, you know, they just need a Labour Party which is radical on economics but is more robust about blowing blowing people up. That's that's kind of yeah, that's that's sort of that's kind of pure almost. Whereas if the problem is then you have voters who are okay, their their income in terms of size is not very large, but their mortgage payments are even lower, they have security of tenure, whether by being in social housing or being owner occupiers, who feel fairly comfortably off all things considered. If if it's a problem of, of how those people relate economically as well as culturally to the Labour Party, that's impure somehow, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why the Labour equivalent of what... so Because obviously the Conservatives did lose votes while gaining them in this election. The other reason why people don't talk about that is that the second you do, if you're the Labour Party, you have to kind of acknowledge that maybe the solution is not just like being another version of yourself, which 
you know, just being yourself in a more authentic way, which in different ways is broadly the snake oil than is being sold by Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, Brecky Long-Bailey, and was being sold by Jess Phillips. Okay, I mean, I, I, that was a much more comprehensive answer than I was expecting to whatever it was that I originally asked. I mean, I kind of feel like the story of the last 10 years is just after every election we've overcorrected. So after 2010, the Tories can't get a majority. After 2015, it was like, how can Labour ever win again? After 2017, it was like, are the Tories stuffed? And now it's like, how can the Tories ever be beaten? And it's just like every time we're kind of... Well, I think 2015 is the one I always kind of think it's worth... Yeah, because I think there is definitely a problem of overcorrection. Although I do actually think one of the things which was very good about the coverage of the 2019 election across the, the piece is I think and people did correctly go, look, all of the evidence suggests the Conservatives will win, but here are the ways it could go wrong, rather than the kind of like way that people covered the 2015 and 2017 elections, where in 2015 it was all very much like the Conservatives have a slightly wild manifesto, but it's all designed to be negotiated away by the Lib Dems, you know, don't, don't, don't pay attention to it. Ed Miliband will definitely take power with the SNP. And in 2017, you basically had governing parties going to win by loads. And here's what its manifesto means for your house. Frustrated agent of, of change, Jeremy Corbyn, had some nice-sounding policies. But who cares? We don't need to scrutinise them in any detail. 2019, I think, was an election which, although a lot of the policy coverage, particularly from the BBC, was quite weak, did at least start from an appropriate level of ambiguity about who could win. Yeah, there was there was scrutiny on both sides, which was unusual in recent British yeah. history. Just a couple of uh, things very briefly, sort of housekeeping points. Firstly, you will probably know out there by now that I'm leaving the New Statesman this week, and I've had a tremendous amount of fun, and it's been great to work here, and I'm still going to keep writing and doing some bits and bobs, so I'm not vanishing completely. There will continue to be skylines for a little bit, because we've got some stuff to get through. What happens after that is, is still up in the air, but it... It may continue under a new team. Who, who knows? The other thing is, for fans of listening to Stephen and I witter on about politics for, for, frankly, more minutes than we intended to when we came in here, I think it's probably a good moment to trail our new podcast, which should be launching in about a month's time. Stephen, do you want to tell us about that? So it's called Prime Ministerial, and you'll have guessed from the title, and it's about the chances of the Duchy of Lancaster. No, it's about the last, I'm going to say six, which it is going to be six, wrong. Yeah. Wow, the last six Prime Ministers in reverse chronological order. So starting with Theresa May, ending in Margaret Thatcher. So, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, the market turn or the year of the new right or the neoliberal moment or two, compl- three completely... Or, or un- you know, British politics, the John Elledge years, as I like to think yeah, of Yeah, the John Elledge years. You know, we'll, we're talking with, you know, the various kind of, you know, their staffers, officials who worked with them about, you know, the politics of the, of the era. And we're kind of sort of going... What we're basically doing is like, what did this person want to achieve and how, how, how effective were they at being the best version of Margaret Thatcher, as it were? And it's, you know, it's been a bit of a, a long-term project, put it that way. We started interviews for this some time ago, but um, we've interviewed some fantastic people for it. I got to, you know, I, we got to interview Peter Manderson, which was a very great honour to, to meet the, the Prince of Darkness himself. Yeah, we, um, Jonathan Hill, I thought, was actually really interesting. So he was someone who people may know him as... David Cameron's penultimate appointment as EU commissioner, but he was also a spad essentially at the heart of Downing Street in the run-up to and immediately after 1992 as it all started to crumble. Really interesting insights. I thought Gavin Barwell was very interesting as well, actually. Actually, um, Jonathan Hill, we should say, was from the uh, John Major episode. The other guest on the John Major episode was someone I was very excited to meet, which is the satirist John O'Farrell, who wrote, oh, what's it called? Things Can Only Get Better, was like one, one of my sort of... Uh, one of the very formative books for me sort of learning about recent politi- British political history back in the day but yeah no it's it's I think it's going to be a fantastic series we're kind of looking forward to hearing the finished product very soon and it should be out by the end of the month so thank you for listening and uh, look out for that
Thank you, Stephen. Guys, I thought this was your last one. I'm going to leave that in. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.